0: The first thing is to understand what's happening. You can't really do much if if, if everybody's arguing about it, which they have been. The Sustainable
1: Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour.
2: Welcome to The Sustainable Hour. As always, we'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that will earn that tremendous privilege in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land. It's land that was never ceded. We cannot hope to have any form of climate justice without having justice for First Nations Australians up front. And then finally, we have so much to learn from the accumulated wisdom that they've acquired from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before that land was stolen. And that history, that knowledge, that wisdom is going to play a large role as we face up to the climate crisis.
3: Oh, what a feeling. Imagine to be bold. Movement that inspires. Believing is magic. It's slogans like that, isn't it? That are meant to make us buy more fossil fuel driven cars and drink soft drinks from plastic bottles. Believing is magic somehow. While we keep ignoring what's going on just right outside. Which is the climate. The climate is beginning to show us what an emergency looks like. So, straight over to Colin Market, OAM. I'm sure you have, once again, more news from around the world. The other weeks have been pretty bleak. So, what do you have for us today, Colin? Oh,
0: this week is still bleak, but with uh, an uplifting ending, Mick. Our roundup this week begins in Belém in Brazil, where last week the presidents of South American nations that contain the Amazon rainforests all met to try and chart a common course to protect the bioregion, which has been called the lungs of the world. The Amazon rainforest stretches across an area that's twice the size of India, and two thirds of it lies in Brazil. The seven other countries involved in the talks are Colombia, Peru, Venezuela, Bolivia, Guyana, Suriname, Ecuador and French Guiana. They talked for three days. They were only scheduled to talk for two. And yet they didn't come to any decisions. They were told that the massive destruction of the Amazon forest is a climate disaster and it must be urgently addressed. Not the least because the countries at the summit, all the countries at the summit, had ratified the Paris Climate Accord, which set targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and cutting the logging of the Amazon would do that. But they couldn't come up with a satisfactory agreement other than to ask for money from wealthy nations to help them police the Amazon and stop land clearing, which is almost all of it illegal, unchecked and in the hands of organized crime. Now that usually would involve the United States because that's the world's wealthiest country. But US President Joe Biden faced some pretty complex climate problems of his own last week. Quite apart from the ongoing heat waves and the deadly wildfires in Hawaii, a Washington Post poll found that 71% of Americans know nothing at all about the 800 billion inflation reduction act which is the centerpiece of the biden administration's efforts to cut planet warming emissions 800 billion dollars and it's being spent on initiatives to boost clean energy and reduce emissions in every sector the past piece said that the fact that americans don't even know about it was not really the fault of the White House, noting that the president and his aides have made roughly 120 stops in nearly 40 states and territories to promote and tout their climate work. They said the fault lies with the US media, which is not covering the story enough. This week on August the 16th is the one year anniversary of the act coming into force and it's a perfect opportunity for journalists to examine how well this legislation is delivering on its goal of cutting U.S. emissions in half by 2030. It's a big aim and a huge amount of money that they're throwing at it. Speaking in New Mexico, President Biden said the IRA Act had sparked a clean energy and manufacturing boom that was creating jobs and putting the US on the path to slash emissions dramatically in the next decade. The Post said that reporters, especially local reporters, should then be scrutinising these claims and asking how many green energy projects have begun in their regions, how many jobs have been created, how many emissions will be avoided over the lifetime of these projects. But apparently they're all simply being ignored. They're ignoring the whole subject of the IRA and climate change. And it's probably important to note that, like here, the majority owner of the US media is Rupert Murdoch's News International, which tends to set all of the other media's agenda. Now, about Hawaii and those fires, climate scientists reported that the island state went from lush to bone dry and thus fire-prone, in a matter of just a few weeks. It had rainfall that brought lush undergrowth, then drought that made it tinder dry, and then hurricanes that arrived once the fires had been sparked. These were key factors in that they all combined and made the wildfire's destruction particularly damaging. Experts said that the climate change was increasing the likelihood of these extreme weather events occurring and combining, and they warned that they were likely to occur elsewhere in the world, including Australia. It's leading to these unpredictable or unforeseen combinations that we're seeing right now that are fueling this extreme fire weather, said Kelsey Copes-Gerbitz, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of British Columbia's Faculty of Forestry. What these catastrophic wildfire disasters are revealing is that nowhere is immune to the issue. So, after all that bad stuff, I've got some good news from the UK. Britain's biggest supermarket chain, Tesco's, this week became the first big global retailer to have its net-zero science-based targets validated by the scientists themselves. The company had outlined ambitious plans for emissions reduction across its operations and its supply chains. The targets will see Tesco committed to becoming carbon neutral across its own operations by 2035 and its full supply chain by 2050. That's in line with the Paris Agreement's aim of limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The retailer has set out its emissions reduction priorities through an agenda across six areas. Improve its products, decarbonize its transport, reduce its stores emissions, support sustainable consumption, eliminate waste and protect nature. Its activities will include the scaling up of deforestation free feed sources a rollout of agricultural innovations such as low-carbon fertiliser and the continued decarbonisation of Tesco stores and transport networks that already have heavy-duty electric vehicles and delivery trucks. It will also encourage its customers to eliminate waste and their emissions and its net zero science-based targets. All have been validated by the Science-Based Targets Initiative SBTI, the official UN body that validates climate targets. In other words, it is not greenwashing, which is we what we hear so much from our big companies. And I should add that we should be publicising this like Billio and urging our own supermarket giants to adopt and uh, continue with the initiative that started by the UK's Tesco's. But that. Ends my roundup for the week.
1: Listen to our sustainable hour for the future.
2: Now, our guest today is Julie Lyford. Julie is, um, has an OAM, as do you, Colin. She's currently the board chair of the Women's Environment Leadership of Australia, or Weller. But she's got an incredible background in community activism, being a councillor and mayor in Gloucester Council. And uh, she's also was chair of Groundswell Gloucester, which we've covered in the past. So, Julie, welcome to the Sustainable Hour and thanks for coming on.
4: Thanks, Tony, Colin and Mick. It's delightful to be here and um, your story. It's really good to hear the uplifting side of of the climate change emergency that we're in and know that there are some great initiatives being put forward. And can I just say I'm tuning in from Waramai and Biripai, First Nations country. Sovereignty was never ceded. And one of the most brilliant things about um, the spirituality and connection to country here for Waramai and Biripai people is during the Rocky Hill coal mine fight, the social impacts on Warramai and Biripai First Nations communities was so profound that Judge Preston um, declined the mine with quite a fair percentage of the social impacts for Warramai and Biripai communities as part of the reason. And it was a quite a profound judgment for um, our First Nations communities as well. Mm.
2: Yeah, so let's talk about... Uh Groundswell Gloucester, as as you were front and centre and part of that, as were a number of people. What yep. tell us what that was like? Because it 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 went on for quite some time to to stop this atrocity happening in in um, the First Nations country. Maybe
4: if I could just do a little bit of a quick history run through as Go to how it. things started. So in nineteen eighty nine. So we've been in Gloucester now for thirty six years. My husband is now retired. But he's a local GP and obstetrician. And um, I'm a former nurse, but I kind of gave up that up when we moved to this small country town in 1986. And in 1989, when our son was born, I, the whole climate change issue was front and centre. You know, we could all see what was happening. I had relatives working in the insurance industry in London, in Lloyds. They were all talking about it, how the insurance industry was going to go belly up because of what we're seeing right now. Um, so, you know the politicians everybody was warned in the 70s so we as you know it, we know that this has been going on for a while but I actually said to a friend of mine Karen when we were walking you know I was so worried about this and she said oh for goodness sake you know stop just whinging about it what are you going to do and she said come on and I said well let's hold a public meeting in Gloucester which is very rural conservative national party electorate beautiful country town that's a politics and I said well let's call a public meeting so we went to the local editor of the newspaper who laughed and said everybody's going to think you're mad nobody believes in this climate rubbish but I defend your right to put a letter into the newspaper saying this which we did 50 people turned up three weeks later to our meeting and the Gloucester Environment Group was formed and it's now going strong 30-something years later, and there are now nearly, I think, 600 people who have membership, and there's a core group of 100 that do amazing work in the community and the region. So people believed it back then. People have known about it for a while. And so in the 9- 1995, somebody said, why don't you run for council? And I thought that would be fun on a bit of an environmental platform. And I got in, which was a bit of a surprise. And at the same time, the environment group was working on the Stratford coal mine issues. Um, That was a new mine that started in Gloucester, the first mine, coal mine. And then we had coal seam gas rear its ugly head in 2004 with fracking. That was so that fight ended in 2016. I left local government in 2012 because I understood the processes, but knew that wasn't the way to actually. Really fight against these fossil fuel giants. So I became an activist and, um, we found it there, there. were several groups that combined that were already fighting those issues and those groups combined in 2012 to form Groundsville Gloucester. And I was asked to chair it. And yeah, the rest is kind of history, I guess, so to speak. So that's, that's kind of a potted profile of why, um, I ended up there.
2: Julie, would I be right in assuming that the particular company sponsored quite a few or the main groups in town? Did that happen in this instance? Oh, yeah.
4: Look, it's a real playbook. And um, it was interesting because when we were fighting the AGL coal seam gas debacle, which which cost AGL $1.2 billion when they finally withdrew in February 2016, um, it was interesting. We got invited to a, a gas conference community panel section. Um, Jenny O'Neill and I, a friend who's a journalist, were, and she was on the Groundsville Gloucester team. And I think they made a huge mistake because when we were there and Jenny was on the panel, they had these interesting researchers speaking on the panel talking about what happens when you want to go into a community. And I, and I quote, it's actually in the AGL the town that said no to AGL book that John Watts, who's also Groundswell Gloucester member, has written. And I detailed it in there because it was so shocking. And they stood up and said, now, when we want to go into a community... They're like a black box to try and understand. And the first thing you do is you get into the sporting clubs, you get into the other clubs and the CWA and you give them money and you get them on side, but you've got to know how this community ticks. And then you get a Woolies and a Maccas. Funnily enough, we got a Woolies for a town of 3,000 people. Um and then they think they've made it. The town thinks they've made it. But then you have to heighten your security because we get break-ins into our mining vehicles. And, and I mean, I just kind of stood up and said, who are you people? Like, this is unbelievable. And it was just, at, at, you know, in the smear campaigns, I, mean, we, I suffered it, so did somebody else. Um, they set up Advanced Gloucester which is like Advance Australia. So they set those up in nature. It's such a playbook. It is gobsmackingly stupid of them, if I might say so. And I've spoken to the Minerals Council on air about this. Like, we know how you operate now. It is so transparent. And then they send along a community liaison officer who says, oh, we'd really like to talk to you. And you go, no, we don't want to talk with you because every time they even say hello to you, they write down that they've liaised with you or communicated with you, which then the government sees that they're doing due diligence in the community. And the other astounding thing was when we got a roundtable about AGL to come to Gloucester from the um we went to the EPA, we got ahead of the EPA and all the government departments came to Gloucester, which was a good thing. We forced them to the table. The young guy from the Department of Water said, we put up flood studies to show that all of the hundred wells, most of them would be underwater if we get one in a five-year flood. He kind of accused us of fabricating the photographs and, and the information and said, where did you get it from? And we were like, the bomb and actual photos of the valley. And he said, well, AGL didn't give us this data. And that was a crucial point for Groundswell Gloucester. We just sat there and were like, hang on a minute. Do you mean to say that you actually don't do your own data research, but you only get it from the proponent, the company? And he said, yes, really defensive. And we just went, this roundtable is over. If this is how it works, you can go away. We're going to do our research. And we're going to show why this is never going to happen. And that's what we did. And it's on our website, groundswellgloucester.com. All of the documents are there for anybody to download and read. And we had a document called Exposing the Risks. And I dumped it on the, the desk of the head of the EPA in New South Wales and said, you are morally culpable. You are morally culpable for what is going to happen in our community They don't like it, but you know what? We pay their wages out of our taxes and they don't get to tick off a fossil fuel company's bidding just because the politics tell them to do that. So that's what enrages me and that's what keeps me going to really put this stuff out in the arena. And the social impacts that are caused by all of this are profound. So I'm also part of a social impacts working group in New South Wales where we're saying to people, this is so bad, what they do to communities, and it's happening now up in Mudgee and the Piliga and Liverpool Plains, for goodness sake, it's our food bowl. So excuse me for getting passionate about this stuff, but I think everybody really needs to wake up about how the processes of government fail communities, mm-hmm. especially with fossil fuel companies.
0: I'm not at all upset that you're passionate about it. I just, more power to your elbow, Julie. Uh, I've got a couple of questions, though. Number one, is the coal mine still operating? Are you aware of whether its output has uh, gone up or gone down? And the other question, is AGL the company that was t- um, essentially hijacked by Mike Cannon-Brooks? And have you noticed a change, or have I got it wrong?
4: I'm not sure of um, who exactly is kind of heading the board or heading AGL at the moment. I just know that um, Andy Vesey, who was the CEO of AGL during our fight up until 2016, was an incredibly intelligent guy who listened to what was happening and who realised that in actual fact the gas field was never going to be a go because the gas probably wasn't there. And that the executives have just been talking it up. So we, we kind of finished with AGL in 2016. So I haven't really been following the AGL story as such. Having said that, you know, Liddell power station did need to close. It was, it was a dinosaur. So as far as the coal minings in Gloucester Valley is concerned, Stratford coal, which was Gloucester coal. It's just winding up its operations this year, and there'll be quite a lot of work for people to do there, which is a good thing um, in remediation, so that keeps a lot of people employed. It has been a good employer for Gloucester. Um, but the Rocky Hill coal mine, which had been mooted for 10 years at least, and that will never happen. That was the Judge Preston, Rocky Hill judgment, um, and it also contained a climate judgment as well about downstream emissions, scope 3 emissions, Um, And that's why that attracted so much publicity. So that coal mine will never go ahead. Uh, We've now got actually a little bioregional kind of status around the area as well. So we won both campaigns. Um, I hope that answers your question.
2: Well,
0: I've just, uh, while you were talking, I looked it up. Mike Cannon-Brooks did buy into the board of AGL. And uh, when, at the time, he described agl is among the most toxic companies on earth he now controls it and he has changed its thinking apparently
4: oh that's well, so you, I think, yeah that's great news because it is is, isn't it? and look you know and i have to make the point with andy vc to his credit he was trying to turn the ship around and um you know he sacked the upstream gas industry once he'd spoken to us about what was happening in gloucester and Yeah, I think they handled that whole, the board handled that whole era very badly, to the extent that we met with the chair of the board in Melbourne at an AGL AGM where we always spoke, we went to every AGM and stood up and spoke whether we were allowed to or not, just saying to the shareholders, you're destroying people's communities. Um, and the comment from the then chair of the board was, why don't you concentrate on dirty little coal mines and leave coal seam gas alone? And we said, we'll do both. Thank you very much. And you mm-hmm. don't actually speak to us, get to speak to us like that. And as soon as we finished in the AGM, I had, I think it was somebody from the Australian ring me and try to catch me out in an interview, and I just said, look, I'm not going to speak to you in the Daily Telegraph. So even the media, the, the toxicity of the media was turned on us um, and to some really good folks in Gloucester um, and ended with one ended up having a, um emotional breakdown over the harassment they received from the toxic media.
0: Yeah. It was led by the Australian, which is News International, which is Rupert Murdoch. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: It's an incredible arrogance, isn't it? It's an industry that's just so used to getting their way, buying buying a social licence and... But it's so good to hear you know, a community that stood up to them. What's the ingredient that worked, that allowed that to happen in Gloucester and that hasn't been able to happen in other places? You mentioned the Liverpool Plains and Pilliga specifically.
4: Yeah, it's an interesting one. I did hear anecdotally from somebody within government that they couldn't wait to get Gloucester off their desks in, in, in uh, government because we were incredibly visible. So, as a tourism town, it's a beautiful, we're the gateway of the Barrington Tops. So, everybody kind of knows where Gloucester is. So, I think it was kind of like it was in their face as well. But having said that, we had 32 organisations help us with AGL and you know, probably half that number with Rocky Hill because that was a bit of a different um, fight. But we had lots and lots of support across the board. We had like the journalists, especially with the ABC, um Prime, Channel, um, Channel 9, like they knew that whenever we spoke to them, whenever I spoke to them, um, they would get facts. They would get no emotion except for the fact we were angry with government process. And we weren't really, you know, look, you can be angry with the companies, but I think it's a waste of energy. It's actually the processes that fail communities. The companies take advantage of the processes that the Minerals Council, I might add, have infiltrated into processes of every government in every state. We know this. We know when we won Rocky Hill that the very six months later, if less than that, there was a letter to the then Environment Minister, New South Wales Environment Minister, from the Minerals Council about winding back scope three and word for word that became a bill called the extraterrestrial limits bill that we then had to fight again it's like really you you know had yeah it's, it's absolutely flabbergasting so it's actually let's get angry about the processes of government not the companies because that's wasted energy we can beat them if we use good
5: process
3: and if we look to the top which is the federal level Julie, Mm. what's going on there? Because it appears to me and many others that, you know, there's this talk about state capture that Mm. our government really, the reason that we're not seeing action on climate the way that would be so natural, especially with all the news coming in about how bad it is, Mm. uh, the reason that's not happening is because the government is actually not doing what's logical for us to protect us, the people. It's acting in the interest of various vested interests, not just Mm. the fossil fuel industry, but Mm. also the big agricultural industry, pharmaceutical industry, property, and so on.
4: Mm, Forestry, like that's a massive fight. Look, I I think it's the same thing, but I'm astounded by Australian labour. They're doing some great stuff. They've got some really progressive things happening. However, What is tying them up in knots to actually... They have got nearly every state red. They have got the platform to really move forward and take this climate emergency and really show the Australian people and the world that we're serious and to continue to tick off coal seam, gas wells in Queensland, coal mines, Woodside. I mean, and also destroying marine... like. It's so flabbergasting, but I would would say this to anybody who's listening from federal Labor, is that I don't think the Liberal National Party are electable in the future because of the demographics. I think the demographics are changing. And every young person you speak to, the level of anger about climate, about housing, about environment, about the forestry that's just destroying our forests in front of our eyes in Australia. If Australian Labor are not worried about the demographics of the voting public when it comes to the next federal election or even the one after that they should be because every young person I speak to there's no way they're going to vote for Labour there's no way they're going to vote for the Liberal National Party the Greens hopefully but I think you'll see a rise of the independents who are actually cutting through like David Pocock Barbara Pocock, I know they're not related, but great speakers, Zali, like they're all there trying to get some stuff happening and being blocked by Labor and Libs in the Senate. I can't understand where those blinkers are coming from, Anthony Albanese, if you're listening, but for goodness sake, we need you.
3: So the Teal movement, that's a bit of a potential revolution, isn't it, at the next election?
4: I agree. And I had somebody who was devastated that, that (laughs) Labor got into power. I was talking to, and he was blaming Simon Holmes of court for getting these two women. And I said, excuse me, those women got there under their own steam. They actually needed some funding to help them. I said, what about all the other people that get funded by the minerals council? So, you know, I said, you know, you really got your thinking skewed, mate. Like, Young people are going to change the face of this country and I want them to do that and I want them to have the fire in their belly to say this has to change because it's their very future that's at stake and ours.
2: Julie talked about the uh, Labor Party. They've got a, some big decisions to make next weekend in Brisbane. It's their annual conference. Mm. It'd be interesting to see if they yeah read the tea leaves, so to speak. And we're lacking leadership.
4: Absolutely. And I don't think they understand. Like this community, three thousand people. We held a climate meeting just before COVID, and I'm I would thought let's not preach the converted. Um, I actually got my husband to talk about climate and health. So Doctors for the Environment are brilliant. Gary's no longer part of them, but they're doing a fabulous job. And so we advertised it, and I was emceeing it. We had Extinction Rebellion there, and we, we talked about all of the key issues, great speakers, I emceed. Before we started, it was the church hall. We put out 40 chairs. 160 people turned up, not the usual people, real conservatives. And they all sat there and I thought, uh huh. So I said, before we start, I have to say this to this audience. Thank you so much for coming. But if you think you're going to have a question where you question anything that you hear tonight, or anything about the climate emergency we're in, you're in the wrong place. I will not have any questions from the floor doubting the climate emergency that we're in. So you may want to go and have an evening somewhere else. And then there was this dead silence. I thought, I've offended half the room. They all clapped. (laughs) And the one person they want to talk to at the end was the Metatronics triple PhD guy from Extinction Rebellion who they were all like, oh, this is terrible Extinction Rebellion they all lined up to talk to him at the end so we the community has changed we are changing and labor is not picking it up
0: in regards to the um, conference that labor is having next week all the signs are that there is going to be a clash between the branches which are pro more action and the leadership which is Well, still pretty much in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry and the mining resources industry. So that's going to make it really interesting. But what would really put the cat among the pigeons is if the words were to get around that if you are interested, join the Labour Party now, turn up at that weekend and tell them how they should be going. All of the major parties, including the Greens, Uh, their votes are either stable or dropping. Their membership, rather, not their votes. Their their membership is dropping. And Mm. uh, if they suddenly get a lift in membership and agitating membership saying, hey, look, we need more more effort when it comes to climate action, then they've got no option but to listen.
4: Yeah, and the coming summer is really scary after what's happened in Maui. And my husband's a rural firefighter. Yeah. And he was part of the 2019, he just joined the brigade, frightening. Mm-hmm. And our river and dry for the first time ever, the Gloucester River and dry. We had tankers delivering water every hour and a French, the French equivalent to our ABC came over to do a documentary um about the Rocky Hill judgment and the climate judgment because it actually went international, which I didn't realise it was so important. So that was amazing. And they came over and filmed our river and dry and then went out in one of the fire trucks. And when he came back, he just went, He he actually was teary and said, this is frightening. Mm-hmm. And I just don't understand why Labor are not frightened as they need to be really frightened.
3: The young people that you talk about have not yet found that courage to step up on the platform and say i'm going to run as a candidate so the, a lot of the young people actually don't really have someone to vote for there's even electorates where there are no teals to vote for so how do we get the young people to have the courage to step up and become candidates and what does that require you've been a counselor for instance does it start with that you, you do your training as a local Politicians, so to say, in your own city hall, and then you move upwards. So, uh, what's the process? Oh, what's your advice?
4: There are many different pathways. I started when I was 38, so that was quite, quite old <laughs> compared to young people. But I know quite a few young people in local government. I think that's a brilliant pathway, and you can stand as an independent. Like, you know, you're representing your community, you know, or you can stand representing your political party, whatever it is, but get in there and make some changes because once you get in there and you see the changes you can make, like we had great environmental statements, you know, another councillor and I got the reconciliation statement through, we got the Aboriginal flag flying on the council chambers, that was a big fight, like this was ages ago. Um, But, yeah, you can make some fantastic changes in local government, but, however, we're running out of time. so. I really encourage young people to get into politics. Even if you're there for one term, you can make some difference. But there's mentoring. There's a lot of people that will be behind you. Look, I'll be really upfront and say I'm a member of the Greens. I stood as a Greens member for line for federal parliament in 2016, uh, which meant I relinquished my um, English uh, citizenship. And I was very pleased to do that because it was so important to stand And things are changing. So have a go and find a mentor. But what do you lose? You don't lose anything. Even if you don't get elected, your voice has been heard. It's about your voice being heard.
0: If you're looking for a mentor if you're young and female and you're looking for a mentor, you'll find it at WILD. Just look it up online, W-I-L-D, Women in Local Democracy.
4: Well, I'll add Wella to that, Women's Environmental Leadership Australia, because we've got a leadership course and now we're hoping to get enough funding next year looking at running the course twice, uh, uh, the National Leadership Program. And it's an astounding program I did in 2017, which changed actually the way I did my leadership. And it's so important for people to know that, and I'll say this, and it might sound twee to some, but it's vital. The whole Weller framework is built around love and kindness. And you can have robustness in that framework, but without love and kindness in the world and leadership, we go nowhere. The old paradigms of that aggressive kind of leadership style, it's gone. We need to change the way leadership happens. And I'm really proud to be chair of the Weller board and the whole Weller brand. And, yeah, have a look at our website. Happy to really answer any questions or if somebody wants to contact so,
3: Let's just hear, what is environmental leadership?
4: Environmental leadership, it can come in many forms. It's mainly not political. There are women who are working in councils um, on environmental initiatives. There are women working for organisations. I was doing the fight for we were part of the Groundswell Gloucester fight for Rocky Hill and I got tapped on the shoulder by Margaret Blakers, one of the founders. And the women that founded Wella. most of them were in the Franklin campaign. These are dynamic women that have changed the world. And Everybody's capable of doing that within the right framework and the right mindset, and it's not about power. It's actually about partnership. It's actually about uplifting people, and you can lead from behind. You don't have to be out front. There's so many wonderful aspects, and there are so many wonderful women's organisations doing it as well.
2: Yeah, it's it's really good that we're touching on this because people don't engage often because they feel like they you know they're sticking their head up, they'll get shot mm. down, get slammed, whatever. The thing about weller and other and wild and other groups that support women is that they're there to empower the women and make sure that they realize that they are not alone
4: well it's interesting when margaret i'm actually sitting in the very room that margaret blake has rang i didn't even know who she was and i was in the middle of actually i was about to do another abc interview for the rocky hill campaign and um she said, oh, I need to speak to you. My name is Margaret Blakers. I'm from Weller. And I was like, mm, don't even know who they were. And she said, we'd like you to come to Sydney for an interview. We'd like you to do our leadership course. And I said, I don't have time to do that. I'm flat out trying to run this campaign against the coal mine and climate. And she said, all the more reason for you to do this course. She said, because if you're not looking after yourself, how can you possibly keep up this energy? So I did the course and the first week was about imposter syndrome, which I didn't know about, but I recognised clearly I had that. Um, you know, where you doubt yourself, you doubt your leadership capabilities, but you're actually doing it. You know, women are really, really big on imposter syndrome. But um, actually, what it taught me was to stop for a week and rest and learn and listen and understand that there are other ways. And your adversaries are often your best guardian angels. You learn so much for them when you stand in their shoes and understand where they're coming from rather than combat them, and you know, reta- not retaliate, but returning kind is such a waste of energy. It's like, what has this person got to teach me? Because I believe inherently that humankind is is inherently good. Um, it's just how do we how do we learn good process and good abilities to actually deal with that adversity in a way that is more productive and kind and and progressive?
0: I speak to you as an elderly, white-haired male. And as an elderly, white-haired male, I've been talking this up for a couple of decades now. We need more women in leadership positions. Mm. And I found it really interesting, Julian, in what you were just saying about uh imposter syndrome, because in the light of the Matildas uh, and the... Courtney Vine, I think it was, was it scored the, the penalty that put them through to the semi-finals. She's been fighting imposter syndrome from the very first time that she was pulled into the uh, the squad. She was invited to join the squad. Uh, now she no longer—I'm quite sure—she's had a, a good self-confidence boost in that she's probably the most famous woman <laughs> in <laughs> Australia at the moment. But it also you, the fact that you're base of of your organisation is uh, love and um, thoughtfulness.
5: I and know, that is yeah. so
0: different to the male aggression that we've seen from all of our politicians up until now. So more power again to you.
3: At the moment, it feels to me like there's more and more aggression out there. There's more and more polarisation.
4: Yeah, look, it, it's interesting because, and I think what what yeah and there's some wonderful wonderful men that support Weller. and there's some wonderful men that support women's leadership as well so don't get me wrong it's not it, there's no way any of our women or women's organizations are anti men we love men it's just that we need to concentrate on uplifting women because they've been left behind and ignored or not empowered so that's the most powerful thing i screamed myself hoarse with the matildas that was just the most exciting game ever um and i think actually with the aggression what we need to do is not respond to it we actually need to respond to it with kindness. If somebody's being aggressive, they're frightened. They're fearful. They feel like they're losing their power. So how do we bring them into a conversation where we're not patronizing, but we acknowledge their fear and try and land on the page somehow? And even if we don't, we treat them with respect anyway. I think, I think to me, the aggression is a sign of fear, of power loss. So how do we not take away the, the power that people perceive they have, but come back to them and say, let's walk together. It's about love and kindness. And you can have robust stuff happening in there, but you also need to be aware that people have feelings, they're human and they love, they feel. Um, and that's the most precious part of it all. That's and if we trans if we transfer that to the planet and to nature and everything we need to look after so that we can actually exist because that's very much at stake, our existence, I think we can cut through. So I'm an optimist, but I do feel every day I wake up a little bit sad but deeply kind of conscious of the fact that the clock's ticking with our climate situation.
5: What is increasing today is climate inactivity, climate irresponsibility, because as we begin to see the impact of extreme weather events and the fact that science is now being proven to be correct, we're actually entering into a stage of what I'm calling pre-traumatic syndrome. We have millions of young people who understand the science and are terrified that the projections of science could become true. And they're already beginning today to live in the trauma and the grief. However, science has been abundantly clear that we have two scenarios. We could either not do anything and then we have a scenario of constant destruction and increasing human misery, or we could actually assume our responsibility And open the portal toward actually not just not experiencing the damage, but rather experiencing a much safer world, a much more just world, a much healthier world, a world in which we collaborate with each other much more than we are doing now. So it is up to us. It is a choice. It is not a question of climate denial. It is a question of climate paralysis. That is where we are now. And the paralysis comes either because some people are so afraid of what is happening that they paralyze themselves, or because people just feel we cannot do anything about it. It's too big for us. It is not my responsibility. I'm just not going to do it. Optimism is not a denial of reality. It is not about closing our eyes either to the science or to the impacts of extreme weather events that are getting deeper and faster every day. Optimism is also not about sitting on the couch and assuming that someone else is going to take care of the problem. Someone else will not take care of the problem. And furthermore, we need to stand up to the challenge of the reality that we face. What I mean by optimism is both facing the reality with strength, with understanding, having really studied the science and being abreast of the impacts that we're suffering every day, and at the same time, having the gritty determination to tap into our own conviction and know that none of us individually, but all of us collectively have the capacity to change the trajectory that we are currently on. We have done it in the past. What
1: do we want, we do, when do we want it now? What do we want? We do when
5: do we want it? If you look at the history of human society, we're undeniably in much better conditions than we were now. We have much better conditions for women, for girls' education. We have much better conditions of health. We have much better conditions of peace, believe it or not. We are losing less people because of war, even with the war that we have on right now, than we did in the past. We have brought millions of people out of poverty and out of misery. Human society is on a path toward continual improvement. Of course, with ups and downs, or else we wouldn't be human. But the trajectory is toward improvement. And now, for those of us who are alive today, our challenge, different from the challenge of our parents or our grandparents, is to bring together the science that we have, the technology that we're developing, the finance that we have available to us, and the policies that we know work, bring all of that together to answer the call of climate change. We can do this.
4: Greta, your first climate strike was a lonely event a little over a year ago,
5: and in the intervening time, you have sparked the interest of millions, literally, of children around the globe demanding action for climate change. What's your message to world leaders today?
1: My message is that we'll be watching you (laughs) This is all wrong I shouldn't be up here I should be back in school On the other side of the ocean Yet You all come to us young people For hope How dare you
5: There are millions of young people, but not just young people, who are in deep pain, in desperation, in grief, and many of whom have fallen into depression. I understand that. And I understand it not in my head, but in my heart. I understand that not only in my head, I understand it in my heart. And that's where it's most painful. The question, however, is, what are we going to do about that? What are we going to do? Because if my reaction or your reaction is, the pain is paralyzing, and I'm gonna crawl into my little black box and pull the blankets over my head, and mourn the loss of what we're seeing. Of course, we're entitled to that and very justified. But it does not help. It just doesn't help. The only thing that helps is to find the commitment, the determination, the grit, precisely in that pain, to stand up, and begin to engage. The only thing that helps with the pain is engagement. In some small way, whatever makes sense to you, whether it's locally, planting a tree, speaking to someone else, whatever makes sense. But engagement, even at a small scale, begins to pull us out of that dark box. And as you begin to crawl out of the box, without denying the realities that we're seeing, then you begin to feel more agency. And that is what we have to cultivate. We have to cultivate our own agency. Right now, the media would want to rob us of our agency. We must cultivate our own agency for good. We must remember every single day that we do have the capacity. Touch that insider ourselves. Find that stamina, find that strength and move forward. Because that is the only thing that is actually going to help us and especially the only thing that is going to help those who come after us.
3: Stand up. And begin to engage. That's what Christiane Figueres is saying. She was the head of United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and that global negotiation process that led to the Paris Agreement back in 2015. And I would say specifically now with the very unique independent movement of women in politics, we've talked about the TEALs and the potential of the teals to create a real political revolution in this country that could change really everything at the coming elections. And we have elections coming all the time. They're coming in October next year. That's the next time we have local council elections here in Victoria. And really, the time to start preparing for that is not next year. It's now. And the same can actually be said about the federal election, which will come at least in a year and a half or so, if not sooner. And then there's again, of course, a state election coming up in 26. So every year there's an election where you out there listening to this could stand up and begin to engage, like Christiana says. The British scientist James Lovelock, who 40 years ago came up with this idea that the planet is one giant self-regulating organism, he called it the Gaia theory, is... I would say, a lot less optimistic than Christiana, but he shares the basic message that we heard from both Christiana and Greta, which is that education, community education, that's where the huge and important task lies ahead of us, for all of us. And we started the hour today, actually, with that little clip when James Lovelock answered these questions from BBC's Hard Talk. What would we all... As a species, the human species, what would we all need to do now to avert that sort of, frankly, end of life scenario that you're talking about? Um, I think
0: the first thing is to understand what's happening. You can't really do much if 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 everybody's arguing about it, which they have been.
3: This is London Calling. This is London Calling. This is long calling. Another opportunity for people here in Geelong, and particular in Lara, to stand up and begin to engage, or, or as they say, to stand up and be heard, comes up on Monday night, where there's a public meeting organized at the Lara Golf Club. Because there's a company called Prospect Hill International that wants to build a waste-to-energy facility, a so-called incinerator in Lara, where they intend to burn something like 400,000 tons of waste every year, sending it up through a 80 meter tall chimney into the atmosphere, and generating some electricity in that way. More or less the same amount of electricity that we could be getting from putting up just six wind turbines. Speakers at this meeting in Lara on Monday will include residents and a panel of leaders in public health, waste management and climate change. And Councillor Sarah Hathaway and Victorian Member of Parliament Sarah Mansfield have announced that they are going to be there. So that's an opportunity and a place where you can make a difference simply by showing up. Show what you think about this incinerator idea. Monday, 21st of August at the Lara Golf Club. It starts at seven o'clock. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. The house is on fire. If you're going down the road to work, there's a house on fire. Children are burning on the top floor. You
0: have no choice but to intervene. And the situation is the whole world is on
3: fire.
2: I'm interested in, in say, in uh, women that would like to, you know, they've been listening to this and they would like to do a Weller course. Yeah. How, how do they go about, I guess, they go to your website, but what's involved? What's the time involvement for them? What are they yeah. doing here?
4: So the national program is actually in action right now. So the cohort of, uh, we had, I think it was something like 70 plus, almost 80 women apply for this year, and we, we only have, 23, 24 places. It could be slightly out there. It might be 21, 22. Um, So next year, we're hoping to raise another $800,000 to actually be able to double the program and double the team that delivers the program, eventually being self-sufficient. And look, it's pretty exciting times. We've got people who really believe in the program. So the next application will be in December or January next year for the 2024. National Leadership Program. But if people jump on the website, because there's small programs that are going on all the time. There's the Victorian Women's Leaders Fellowship. There was a music, music one, uh, for a weekend that was really successful. Uh, there's just Queensland. There was one in Queensland recently and we're looking at New South Wales, but jump on the website and we'd be really, I'd be like, you know, they can contact me. My details are there. Um, yeah, very exciting times. And, uh, if I can just really publicize that financial support is always there. We've got our giving circle. You can become a member of Weller. Yeah, it's, um, it's exciting to be part of such a, an amazing progressive organization. And can I just say that Victoria Mackenzie-McCarr, who's our strategic director and her team, I tell you, having somebody like Victoria as head of the organisation to be a chair for, uh, it just makes my heart sing because she is brilliant, so is her team, and the women, it just makes my heart sing. And there are other women's organisations out there doing it, not doing the National Leadership Program, but doing other brilliant things around climate too.
3: That's it. The hour is up. And I think you've certainly shown us a pathway to how women can step in and be the difference.
4: Yeah, and men. We support men too. (laughs) (laughs) And for communities that are out there doing it tough, don't stop fighting. You never know what's going to be the winning streak.
1: Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Be the difference. Be the difference.